Uh, well, quick question. By show of hands, how many of you have ever had plans that didn't go quite the way you expected? Okay, I figured there'd be a lot of people. If you didn't raise your hand, then I just need to learn how to plan things with you. So I remember as, as a very young kid, I was in the car with my mom. We were driving through town. I grew up in Mount Vernon, Ohio, so we were driving through Mount Vernon, Ohio. And she asked me, she said, said Robert, what, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, easy. I want to play professional baseball. And she said, well, what if that doesn't work out? And I said, okay, if that doesn't work out, um, professional football. <laughs> she said, well, what if that doesn't work out? I said, professional basketball, which if any of you have seen me play basketball, you know that was never going to happen. And we went on, and then I eventually got to professional soccer. And I was pretty confident that at least one of those four was going to work out for me. Many of you who have done home projects recognize the frustration or have experienced the frustration of that home project taking about twice as long as you had planned for it to take. It's amazing. One does not simply make one trip to Home Depot. Every four years, this year being one of them, we hear big plans and big promises from candidates, many of which, many of those plans, don't actually become reality. And some here, on a more sober note, some here know the pain of long-term plans being decimated due to an untimely death. Friends, plans change all the time. Why? Because we don't control the future. So what are we to do with our plans? We just stop making them all together? We just throw them out? Well, James, in our passage this morning, addresses that topic. He provides insight to that very question. And if you're joining us and you're wondering where we are in the book of James, we're currently in chapter 4. We're looking at verses 13 through 17, and leading up to this, We've seen James address various things. In fact, this is one of the earliest New Testament books written. And it was written by James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, and it was written to the Jewish Christians who had been dispersed. They were undergoing persecution. James was one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church, and this church had been dispersed, and James is writing to them to encourage them to not only proclaim the faith, but to walk in light of it. See, many had, had stopped following Jesus due to the persecution. Others didn't stop proclaiming Jesus. They still claimed to be followers of Jesus, but they stopped living like it to avoid said persecution. They had words, but no works or, or evidence to, to back up those words. And James writes to these people to inform them that genuine faith works. Real faith has evidence. And so as you read through the letter, you'll see James focusing really closely, really particularly on the relationship between faith and works. In fact, in 108 verses in James, we see 59 different commands. Now, he makes it clear that we're saved by faith alone, but he, he makes the, the, the claim, as theologians like to summarize, that saving faith is never alone. Genuine faith is never alone. It, in fact, works. Now, he addresses that through different topics. So he 
looks at how genuine faith approaches trials and temptations. We see that in, in chapter 1. We see how genuine faith responds to God's word. They're doers of the word and not hearers only. We see how genuine faith treats people of different backgrounds, that he treats them equitably, equitably and fairly. We see how genuine faith uses the tongue, uses words. And then we saw last week how genuine faith lives in the world. It's consistent with the faith from above, not worldly, faith, or not worldly wisdom. It's from the wisdom from above that faith lives in accordance with. And today, friends, we see how genuine faith approaches the future. And what we see in this passage is that God, not us, God is sovereign. And that word sovereign is a fancy way of saying he controls all things. So we see in, in, this, in this passage here, verses 13 through 17, that God is sovereign. Therefore, genuine faith submits its future to God. It recognizes that God is in control, not me. And so let's look at that passage. We're looking at James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. If you're flipping in your Bibles, you see Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. So look for James chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 13 through 17. This is God's word. Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Let's pray. Father, help us to, to see what's in your word here clearly. Show us clearly what the right thing is to do and help us to do it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you look at um, your bulletin, you're going to find that there are two primary sections to this sermon. The first one is verses 13 through 14, where we see arrogant boasting. Arrogant boasting. And then the second, for the last three verses, we see humble submission. Arrogant boasting and humble submission. So looking at arrogant boasting. So James here is, is redirecting his attention. He had just talked about the wisdom, uh, the two different kinds of wisdom. Wisdom from above and wisdom from below, earthly wisdom. And what James is now saying, in light of that wisdom talk, he says, here's what wisdom looks like as you consider your future. So he says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we're going to such and such a town, spend a year there and make trade and make a profit. That come now, that phrase there, essentially means pay attention or listen closely. He's saying, come in here, listen closely, you who say these things. So who is it that should pay attention? It's those who are planning their lives without considering God's rule over their lives. Some were saying, today or tomorrow, we'll, we'll, we'll go into a town. We will spend a year there. We will trade. And we will make a profit. One commentator pointed out, he said, these planners intend to travel 
and stay in a foreign city in a time when travel was not always safe. And they then expect to do profitable business there. They have the time and the places and the activities all set. Everything is secure, and they do not think at all of how God might regard their plans. Friends, the problem wasn't with their plans. It wasn't that they had plans. It's okay to make plans. The Bible even commends it in several areas. The problem was that their plans gave no regard to God, the very one who gives them life and breath and movement. They were so consumed with their travels, they were consumed with their activities, with their careers and with making money, that they failed to consider their highest priority, God himself. They were presumptuous. They presumed upon God continuing to sustain them in the days, months, and years ahead without giving any acknowledgement to him with their plans. Now, because of the references to trade and to profit, um, and because of the way chapter 5 starts, where it says, come now, you rich, some commentators believe that James is addressing the wealthy, and, and that could be the case. I mean, after all, wealth can give a, a false sense of control, a false sense of security. I mean, if you can afford your groceries, then you're probably a little less concerned about not having your next meal. If you can afford your mortgage or rent, then you're likely not concerned about being homeless. If you can afford insurance, then catastrophe, although it's inconvenient, is far less daunting. However, whether you have money or not, I think, I think we're all prone to this, what James is talking about. We're all susceptible to overlooking God when we consider our future. And oftentimes, it's a, it's a brush with death that reminds us of that. Whether it's a close call for ourselves, or it's the death of a loved one, uh, or even an unexpected diagnosis, we rarely have a healthy understanding of just how frail our lives really are. And James points that out. Look at verse 14. He, he says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist. You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And, and lest we think that James is saying something new here, he's not. All throughout Scripture, we see allusions to this. We see in Proverbs 27, verse 1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Job 7, verse 7, Remember that my life is a breath. Psalm 89, Remember how short my time is. Psalm 90, verse 12, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Psalm 102, 3, for my days pass away like smoke. Psalm 144, verse 4, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And 1 Peter 124, which we looked at, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. Friends, our lives are, are far more brief than we care to acknowledge. And, and we do not know the future. Which, that's just, that's just part of being human. Not knowing... The future. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what the next five minutes will bring, let alone the rest of the day or, or days, weeks, and months after that. One commentator put it this way. He said, he said, James is saying to his readers, you cannot control your lives any more than you can control what happens to the vapor you breathe out on a cold winter's morning. 
Next time you're outside and you see your breath, consider that's, that's an illustration of what my life is like. Friends, we don't know if our, if our health will remain. Several years ago, I had a friend who was in Lowe's, and he was just doing a home project, and he was going to pick some things up when suddenly he collapsed, and he, he couldn't walk. And after taking him to the hospital and assessing him, they realized that one of his vertebrae had essentially been crushed by the rest of his spine because of a bone disease that he did not realize that he had. His one vertebrae had become extremely weak, and his spine was crushed. Just standing in Lowe's. Our health can be taken away from us in a moment. We do not know the future. We don't know the span of our life. I mean, many of us can still remember the shock and devastation felt when we received the news that that a friend or a classmate or a family member had passed away unexpectedly. I, I just experienced this about a month ago. I was driving in the car, and a friend that I saw probably every few weeks just got a text message that he had passed away unexpectedly. Nobody saw it coming, and I just remember being in the car and just putting my hand over my mouth because I just could not believe that he was gone. Our lives can come to an end in a moment. We don't know the future, but unlike us, God does know the future. In fact, Jesus, God in the flesh, predicted his own death, which was just further evidence of his divinity for their evidence that he was God. He knows the future because, unlike us, God controls the future. See in Ephesians 1.11 that he works all things. Not some things, not most things. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Job 42, no purpose of God's can be thwarted. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Again, not some of what he pleases, not most, not 99.99% of what he pleases. He does all that he pleases. Friends, we don't know the future, but God does. And God knows the future because he controls it. And so if you're a Christian, if you're here and you are a follower of Christ, then hear me, God controlling the future, God ruling over the future is a wonderfully comforting thing. It should be a great comfort to you because of that passage that we've all heard so many times, Romans 8, 28. We know, not we're pretty sure, we know that for those who love God, for those who have submitted to his rule, those who are following after Christ, we know that all things work together for good. And so, Christian, as you make plans, you can truly rest, knowing that should your plans not turn out the way that you had hoped that they would, it's because God is masterfully working in your life toward a greater good, your ultimate good. If you're not a Christian this morning, thank you for being here. hope that you continue to come and or feel comfortable and, and welcome to, to ask any questions. But I want to remind you this morning that you do not control your future. You may, yes, you may have the ability to affect your future, to maybe influence some of it, but you do not control it. Which means you do not know 
how many more opportunities you will have to turn to Christ. You don't know how many more times you'll be presented with the gospel. You don't know how many more chances you'll have to throw yourself on the mercy of God. Jonathan Edwards, uh, talking about this in an old sermon, he put it this way. He said, your wickedness or your sin makes you, as it were, heavy as lead and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and your best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Friend, we are not guaranteed tomorrow. As we look at this text, is your life currently more marked by the arrogant boasting in verses 13 and 14, presuming that you're going to be here tomorrow, presuming that you're going to be here months, years down the road, taking no consideration of God in your plans? Is it marked more by verses 13 and 14? If so, consider verse 15, where James shows us a better way, one of humble submission. So what is it that we should do? He, he critiques verses 13, verses 13, 14. He critiques planning without taking God into consideration. And so now he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now notice, in this improved version that James is offering, there are still plans being made. He says, we will live and do this or that. So again, making plans wasn't the issue. But this time, there's an important phrase added before it. If the Lord wills. So look, James is telling them that all of their plans should be submitted to the Lord. Why? Well, I think there's at least two reasons why. The first is that submitting our plans to the Lord is an act of humble submission to the king. It's an act of humble submission to the king. It's saying, here are my plans, but they can change. If the Lord sees fit, he can change my plans. It's saying, not my will, God, but yours be done. I've made these plans, but you can change them if you see fit, because I am trusting in your goodness. Which is exactly what Christ said in the garden right before his crucifixion. Christ perfectly, in every way, submitted every moment to the Father. To submit our plans to God is an act of humble submission, acknowledging that I am not in control, you are God. But secondarily, it's also a declaration of trust. So we're humbly submitting because we are trusting. It's saying, I trust that God's ways are, in fact, higher than mine. I've made these plans. To the best of my ability, I'm going to pursue these. But I submit them to God because I trust that his ways are higher than mine. And furthermore, I trust that God does control all things. And I trust that God is good. So if they do change, it is for the good. And friends, I recognize how difficult 
that truth can be to swallow. When you lose a loved one, a family member, when you lose a child, friends, I will stand here and I will tell you I do not know how God is going to use that for your ultimate good. However, I can tell you with confidence that he will. And his ways are higher than our ways. To add to that, James points out that to disregard God and our plans is arrogant and proud. Look at verse 16, if you would. We see as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It's amazing how throughout Scripture, we continuously see God be against the proud. It's like he has an allergy to the proud. And we just saw this in verse 6 of, of the same chapter, James 4, 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Friends, to be proud is to position yourself against God. And James informs us that one form of pride is to plan and to approach the future like you are in control rather than God. And so for all of us here, as, as we consider and plan for the future, let's, let's be careful not to position ourselves against God by presuming upon the future. James says all such boasting is evil. Now, now to clarify, he's not saying that boasting is evil. He's saying that all such boasting is evil. Not all boasting is evil. 2 Corinthians 10, 17, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so there is a kind of boasting that is pleasing to God, the kind that expresses great confidence in him. One commentary put it this way. It said, any attempt by the reader to envision their future apart from the sovereignty and lordship of God is, for James, the height of arrogance. The height of arrogance. And so then he points out in verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now this can seem kind of oddly placed. As we look at the rest of the passage, it seems like this is kind of like a strange statement to throw in at the end. But James is concluding this thought. He's saying, look, as you now know what to do, you, you see what some have been doing, now you know what to do. He's saying, do it. This is what uh, theologians call the sins of omission. So there's sins of commission, and this is doing what God prohibits. So, for example, Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, don't eat of the tree. They did. And then there's sins of omission, which is not doing what God commands. So one example, we see several examples throughout Scripture, but, but at least one is the story of the Good Samaritan, the, the priest and the Levite. Both walked by without helping him, but the Samaritan helped the man. And so this, what verse 17 is getting at, is not doing what God has called us to do. And so now that we know what to do with our plans, to submit them to the Lord, to make them with God in mind, to not do so would be sin. And so rather than arrogantly presuming upon the future, let's humbly submit our future to the Lord. Now, a question that may come up looking at this text is, does that mean that, that we're supposed to say, Lord willing, after everything? So we're going to, to pick up groceries 
Lord willing. Spring's coming. Lord willing. We're having pizza for dinner. Lord willing. No, uh, it's not about the recitation of words. James, friends, is addressing a heart posture. And so whether you say Lord willing or not, the posture of your heart should reflect that you are submitting these plans to God. Another commentary said that to say Lord willing means to approach our lives, plans, and future from the perspective of God's sovereignty over all things. Now, I want to be clear, however, that Scripture does commend the use of words to convey what's in the heart. I mean, after all, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we actually see several examples of Lord willing or some variation of that in Scripture. Acts 18.21, Paul to the Ephesians says, I will return to you if God wills. 1 Corinthians 4.19, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. Later in the book, 1 Corinthians 16.7, he says, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And then Hebrews 6.3, the author says, and this we will do if God permits. So it's a good thing to use words to convey what is in your heart. However, that doesn't mean that we need to have Lord willing police, making sure that everybody is saying Lord willing after every notion of a plan is uttered. But friends, it's about the posture of the heart. As you make your plans, are you submitting them to the Lord? Because we do not control the future. He does. And to submit our plans to him is to humbly submit to his lordship, his rule over the future, and to trust that he is good and worthy to submit our future to. Some of you who um, are familiar with uh, world news may, may have heard of Alexei Navalny, a Russian opposition leader who devoted his political life to exposing the corruption within the Russian government. Um, in August of 2020, so just a few years ago, he was poisoned with a nerve agent, something that most people do not survive. But rather than take him to a Russian hospital where he would almost certainly be offed, uh, they evacuated him to a hospital in Berlin. They took him to Germany, where after a month of care, somehow he ended up surviving. Then, less than six months later, in January of 2021, he decided to return to Russia. And when asked why in the world he would return after there was just an assassination attempt on his life, he said this. He explained, if you want to talk, if you want, I'll talk to you about God and salvation. He said, I'll turn up the volume of heartbreak to the maximum, so to speak. The fact is that I am a Christian, which usually rather, sets me up as an example for constant ridicule in the anti-corruption foundation because most of our people are atheists and I was once quite a militant atheist myself. And he continues, he says, but now I am a believer. And that helps me a lot in my activities because everything becomes much, much easier. I think about things less. There are fewer dilemmas in my life. Why? Because there's a book it's not always easy to follow this book, of course, but I'm actually trying. And so, as I said, it's easier for me, probably, than for many others to engage in politics. Now, Navalny knew that his days were limited as soon as he came back to Russia, 
and just a couple weeks ago, uh, he was killed. But for Navalny, it wasn't about knowing tomorrow. It wasn't about securing tomorrow. It was about being faithful today and trusting God with tomorrow. Friends, God is sovereign. Therefore, genuine faith submits its future to God. It seeks to be faithful today and submit the future to God. Yes, make plans. Making plans is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Scripture commends it. But as we make plans, we submit them to the Lord. Friends, let the posture of your heart reflect the posture of Christ, who in the garden said, not my will, but yours be done. Maybe you're here today and the frailty of life isn't something that you overlook. Maybe, perhaps, instead, it's so evident, it actually makes you anxious. Your issue isn't being too overconfident in the future. Your, your issue is not having enough confidence in the God of the future. Well, God has something to say to you as well. In Matthew 6, Jesus is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and he, he tells his listeners, he says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Here's what we need to see, is that whether it's overconfidence in tomorrow or whether it's anxiety about tomorrow, both are rooted in the same error. Both are rooted in a lack of submission to God and a lack of trust in his sovereignty and goodness. If you're not a Christian today, I would encourage you, don't take God's patience for granted. Jesus, again, talking, in Luke 12, he tells them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So you see a little bit of anxiety. What shall I do? What am I going to do? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. Friends, if your life was demanded of you tonight, would you be ready to face God? The good news that although we often fail in trusting God with tomorrow, whether it's with overconfidence or whether it's with anxiety, Christ did not fail there. He perfectly submitted his future to the Father. He perfectly trusted in the Father's sovereignty and goodness. And if you trust Christ today, he promises to put his spirit inside of you, his spirit of trust, which will equip you and help you to continue trusting him in the days, months, and years ahead. We do not know what tomorrow holds. God has not revealed that to us. But we do know what eternity holds. God has revealed that. So he's shown us the end game, but he hasn't showed us the details in between. 
If you haven't already, I would encourage you to entrust your eternal tomorrow to God. Believe that Christ is the Messiah. Trust him to remove your sin, whether it's past sin, present sin, and future sin. Trust him to cover all of it by his death on the cross, his resurrection on the third day. Submit to him as your king today. And by trusting him, submit to him by trusting him with all of your tomorrows. And if you've come to believe that today, maybe today's the first day that, that it's clicked, tell somebody. Encourage, I'd encourage you to, to not keep that to yourself. Tell somebody. Because when we do entrust God with our tomorrows, with our eternal tomorrow, we can sing with confidence the, the fourth verse of Abide With Me that we just sang on page three in our bulletin. It says, I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight. Tears lose their bitterness. Where is thy sting death? Where, gra- where grave thy victory? I triumph still. Abide with me. Those who trust in Christ will triumph still. And they can rest knowing that tomorrow, their eternal tomorrow, is secure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for providing us with a Savior. Lord, forgive us when we overlook our Savior and we begin to be concerned about tomorrow or we begin to be overconfident about tomorrow. God, help us to entrust all of our plans to you. Help us to not only trust Christ as our eternal Savior, but to trust him as our Lord today. Help us to be faithful today and to entrust you with tomorrow. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.